Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. Got Elias Randall with me today. Elias, what's new in your world? First, it was was last week your first uh, football game? Second. Second? Second. Any missed yep. calls? No, I don't. You're do, 100%? I don't do missed calls. You're you're a veteran now? You're no longer a rookie? Here's the deal. <laughs> Here's the deal with that. You might see some stuff that I don't call, and maybe I was wrong, but usually if I call it, everyone in the stadium knows there's a foul. Well, I would think in high school football a little bit of that. Um, you have to let them play the game. Otherwise, I'm guessing you could throw a flag on about every play in high school football. You could. Yeah, and and the lower the level, the sloppier the play is. So, like, just the higher level you go, the better the players are. And you have to have some grace for um, – kind of where they're at too so yeah but if you want to throw a flag every play you can but we'll be there for three days trying to get through one football game <laughs> yeah we don't we we absolutely don't want that. no and no one's there no one paid their money to go watch the officials they're there to watch the game so it's just better to stay out of it if you can i, I like that take on it so last night elias i took my daughter to a tennis lesson i ran into a friend of mine who's involved in the housing business um their family builds homes we were talking about housing affordability and he said you know the last year has been really rough but recently we've seen people start to kind of enter back into that buyer pool and what i think is ironic about this is for the last year if you turn on youtube and you don't have a media filter and you're just buying into what's on the internet everybody's told you how housing prices are going to collapse housing prices actually haven't gone down they've come back to their peak of a year ago in the summer. I just read that from Redfin. Yeah, there's more There's more to it. And I think one thing with any sort of market, especially financial markets, just because the price goes up doesn't mean it has to come down. Like there's more to it than just price, right? And all the people saying that were just looking at one metric, the it's price. Clickbait. People weren't looking no, they're, at- They're clickbaiting. They're trying to get followers. That's what it's all about. I had this discussion yeah. with a client the other day. I can tell what people, what type of media they're consuming based upon what questions they ask me because it's the same question over and over. And if you think about how YouTube works and some of the other things, just one person creates it, then another person creates another thing kind of like it because it had a lot of views and just like this vicious circle. But, but what I thought was interesting, and there's no homes for sale still. There's nothing for sale. And I had this discussion with them and I said, eventually buyers are going to realize that this is the new rate world and the interest rate environment we're in right now is not really that high. It's more of a normalized rate environment. We were just sucked in to this zero interest rate environment for the last 10 years. I ran across an article. And this is what got me kind of thinking about this whole topic because housing affordability has become, I mean, for most people, it's hard to afford a house. I saw a metric that that was showing the difference in interest rates from three years ago till today. A $730,000 mortgage three years ago is now the equivalent of a 430, I think it was $438,000 mortgage. So think about that. Your, let, let, let me put you in this scenario, Elias. You're making about the same amount of money, maybe a little bit more, let's say. You bought a house three years ago for 400,000. You had another kid, so now you need another house. Let's say you've outgrown your house. Can you afford to move up? 
can you afford a bigger house? No, you just buy just buy a shed for the backyard. Well, I mean that another I, bedroom. Think about it. So that so you have a four hundred thousand dollar house now, and you can't move up, and you need a bigger house. The your only option is to probably find an old fixer upper. It's not new construction because that's going to cost you six hundred thousand today in our local market. And one of the articles that I ran by actually talked about. There's more unmarried couples buying homes today. And I think some of it has to do with housing affordability. This the study actually shows that three in five unmarried couples in the US live with their partners and are buying homes together. Three Before, out of five? Three out of five so unmarried couples live together. That seems really high. Well, you think back in the day. Living Man. together and buying a house. Not three and five. Live. Three and five are living together. Three and five live together. But okay. That I can see that. That's 60%. I can see that. 30 but. years ago, no way was it three and five. Like, what would your parents... 30 or you, well, dude, well, you weren't even born. 30 years ago, I was five years old. So you, I mean, maybe the internet <laughs> was here when I got married. You shouldn't ask me but questions. I'll be married 21 years ago. And I live with my wife in, in college because we were roommates and it was a money thing, right? It was myself, my wife, and her friend. But back then, I feel like nobody was just living with their boyfriend or girlfriend unless they were either engaged or married. And when we lived together, we were engaged. We didn't live together before that. We were engaged when we lived together. But because of this cost of living, especially the housing market, it's just a lot easier to put multiple people into a household to say, hey, let's split the the electricity and the heat and the gas and all the maintenance that goes to it. I just think it's ironic there's that many people that are struggling to pay the bills that they're bringing in their partner as a roommate. Yeah, well, there's yeah, there, there's just a lot that goes into this. Houses are much bigger than they used to be. Families are much smaller. You know, it's kind of a it's an it's an odd it's really odd if you look at just look at like back in the 80s a lot of people the houses were smaller the family even before then smaller houses bigger families so i don't know i i think for some people they might end up living in a smaller house than what they want maybe kids are going to share bedrooms you know i don't know but there there's a lot of nice places out there i know that well, I think something to talk about if you're if you're one of these people, and we're not frowning upon people living with their partner. That's all a personal choice. But one of the things to think about, if you're going to buy a house together with somebody you're not married to, I would say there's a lot more thought that needs to go into this than when you're married. Right? When you're married, you've got this legal contract that kind of spells out what happens if you split. If you just go buy a house with somebody, what's the legal contract you've drawn up? I think whoever's name it's in gets to own the house. There you go. So I, th I think if you're thinking about this, a couple things you want to do is, one, you need to make sure you have some legal documents drawn up to help protect your investment in this property and lay out what each person's legal rights are. Because we're assuming that they're buying the property 50-50. And if you go just put a property into, you know, you buy it with jointly, I'm guessing it assumes that it's split 50-50 if you decide to sell it. Well, what if one person's paying 80% and the other person pays 20? 50-50. Yeah. So I, I think know. if you're considering this, you really need to think about contacting an attorney, figuring out how you want this thing titled. 
what happens to the property if something dies to one of the people? Who gets ownership then? There's so many things people aren't considering when they do this. Um, the other thing to consider is if you're not married, what happens if the other person can't pay? Can you pay? Because if you can't pay, you're potentially putting your credit at risk is you own this together. It's kind of the old adage of co-signing a loan for somebody. That's great. I'll co-sign a loan for my son for a car. Well, if he doesn't pay, guess who's got to pay? You I do. do. Otherwise, it's going to affect my credit. So just with the rise in housing, housing cost and the overall unaffordability for a lot of people, there's a lot of things that unmarried couples need to address before they actually decide to do this. I don't know. Do you have any other kind of thoughts on the unmarried couples buying real estate properties together? I mean, I, I think I, we hit it, but yeah, I, I don't. I think in addition, though, and, and this is whether married or unmarried buying a house, certainly for any a first time home buyer, there's a lot of there's a lot of expense to it. And it goes beyond just the down payment and the mortgage payment that you're going to have every month. There's a lot of additional expenses. And I think when you're in the situation where you're wanting to buy buy a home and especially a first time home buyer. I actually was having a conversation a while back because I remember, and Roger, I know you remember this, like 10 years ago, a lot of people were saying uh, millennials weren't going to buy houses. Millennials were always gonna live in apartments so they could be more fluid in where they live. And, and it turns out that really owning property, owning a home is still still probably the top American dream, right? To have a place that's yours and to have a little piece of land. Yeah, what, you, what you're talking about was probably, I would say the peak of that was 2012 to 2015 where developers were creating multi-level housing that had a gym, a workout facility, a coffee shop, a little restaurant or bar to hang out and kind of trying to bring everything or a big city vibe into one kind of complex. And that was hot for a while. And I'm not sure people still wouldn't want that had it not been for COVID. Because if you think what COVID actually did, it caused this mass migration out of cities into rural areas where people wanted to have more space and they didn't want to be in an apartment building with 3000 other people and all those other things. And they were cooped up in a small apartment. You know, if you lived in New York city and the city shut down, what do you do? You, you stay, stay in, in your, your apartment, 800 square foot apartment, horrible, right? Out. Yeah. If you live in rural Iowa and it's not shut down, what do you do? You go outside and play. You can go to a park. Like there's all these things you could do or, Good example, Lake of the Ozarks, it thrived during COVID because they didn't shut down, number one. But number two, you could still go out and do activities on the water that you didn't have to be around people. So I do wonder a little bit if that dynamic has shifted, mostly due to, you know, hey, I don't want to be in a small, isolated place in case this happens again. That that could be. Some people might find themselves kind of struggling financially with a home and doing a first-time purchase. So there, there's three very costly things that sometimes can be a surprise. There are things you should be prepared for, especially now when we have record high home prices and all the data suggests that's not going to change. And the fundamental thing we've talked about a bunch is 
there's just not enough houses and there's not even enough home builders to catch up with the demand, which that could be a total, a whole nother topic in itself. But, but the three main kind of surprise expenses or something people may overlook property taxes, homeowners insurance and home maintenance. So I'll touch on all three a little bit, but property taxes. Now, a lot of times this can be kind of wrapped up in your monthly payment, put in an escrow account, and then that payment will be made when it's due. It's just something you need to factor in because the cost of a home isn't just the mortgage. There's also the property taxes. And then homeowner's insurance, you're not going to you're not going to own a house and then not insure it because if you have a fire, you have a natural disaster, if something happens, you need to have an insurance contract there to make you whole on that and get you back to where you were. Um, well, and people aren't going to have the, the option to not insure it. You're, your yeah, lender's going to you require it that you, that you carry insurance right. through the entire. And, you know, people underestimate the cost of this. You know, we're in Iowa and we, we think, you know, you know, my homeowners is two thousand bucks. Let's say at whatever it is. Go ask someone what it is in Louisiana. I've got clients in New Orleans, fifteen thousand a year for their homeowners. Go to Florida, thirty thousand a year. That's what people are paying to insure their property. That much money, because and that's if a lot of these areas insurers aren't they're pulling out. They're not even allowing new policies to be written there. Yeah, I don't know if you read the stuff on Florida. But there's a lot of areas in Florida that they're not renewing policies. All state American family. I think there's other one other major insurer. They're not going to take contracts down there. And if they are, deductibles are going through the roof, and premiums are too. Jeez, yeah. So then you're what? You're either just going to pay astronomical premiums or self-insure. Yeah, which and the lot- bank doesn't let you self-insure. That means you're writing a check for the property. Yeah, the only way you can self-insure is if you just pay cash for the right. place. Yeah. So, and then the, the final one, the third one, home maintenance. And this is something that, this is something that never goes away. How owning a home is, it's costly for a lot of reasons, but you're always going to have maintenance, whether it's a furnace goes out, a water heater goes out. If you buy an older home, you might have to replace windows, siding. Eventually every house needs a new roof on it. You know, there's just all of these things that that come up and certainly if you're a first time home buyer you want to have sufficient cushion for all those surprises and an easy way to do that one thing we talk a lot about is an adequate emergency fund you know home maintenance when if you have cash available you have an appropriate emergency fund and it's 105 degrees out and the air conditioning goes out well you have cash to pay for that but there's always going to be something with a house. And just and if and if you buy a fixer upper, it's you're not just gonna remodel one room. You're gonna do one room and then it's gonna be the next room and the next and the next. So whether you build something new, you buy something that needs work, or you just buy something you like that doesn't need work, home maintenance will always be part of home ownership. So a friend of ours that we know mutually, the big guy, we're having a talk and his son wanted to buy a house and he kinda wanted my opinion. And I said, well, you know, what's it look like? He goes, well, you know, he could make the mortgage payments about 30% of his net. I'm like, well, that's reasonable. But what year's this house? He's like, it's like 50 years old. I said, okay, whatever the mortgage payment is, add 50%. Because that's really the true cost of home ownership, probably. You know, if the principal and interest is 1500 
you better add another 750 a month to it. Otherwise you're gonna be in credit card debt. Like it's gonna happen. Like you said, you know, I've owned a home that was 40 years old before. It was thousands of dollars a month in repairs. Oh, you got a foundation crack. You got a water leak. Furnace went out. You know, dryer started on fire. All these different things happen. Like it's gonna happen. And that's what first time home buyers run into. First time home buyers aren't buying new construction. They're buying something 30, 40, 50 years old that somebody else is selling for a reason. I, I think people, when they buy homes, they just assume people want to like get a new home. People sell their house for a reason. What's a hidden thing that you don't know about that? Whenever I look at a house, I'm trying to figure out why are they selling? Why? Are they getting a bigger house? Do they move out of town? Or is there like a problem with this place? They're just not telling me. Right. And yeah, they have disclosures. But and the problems are you, there. You can identify the problems typically, but a lot of times you can't identify the problems until you're in there. Everybody thinks the home inspector is going to find everything. The home inspector is not going to find if the 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 washer doesn't work right or the dishwasher. They're going to turn it on, make sure it runs. They're not running a cycle through it. You know, they they're not washing sheets when they go there. So <laughs> turned on. Yeah. I, that's reality of what it is. So if you're a first time home buyer, whatever that principal and interest is, you better just add 50% to it. And if somebody, maybe it's, maybe it's more, someone might chime in and let us know if someone has an opinion on that, you could reach out to us at btwellshow.com. But one of the things, if you are going to be a first time home buyer, or even if you're not a first time home buyer, you're going to buy a home that needs like some maintenance or some fixing up. There are some home improvements that are tax deductible in 2023. The incentives in the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act and other laws that have been passed add up to like thousands of dollars a year that people can get in tax deductions or credits. And I have a statistic that 9 million people didn't receive tax benefits they were owed in 2021. 9 million people were eligible for a tax benefit and didn't get it in 2021. And the number one reason they didn't get it, they weren't aware of it. This makes me think how many of the 9,000 people, Elias, filed their own taxes? Oh, of that 9 million? I, I bet it's know. like probably 95%. a lot. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how many, what the number is on people that do their own. This but. is a good example of people think, and I'm not backing on anybody who does their own taxes, but people always think it's cheaper to do your own taxes. Well, the one time your accountant gets you a $5,000 tax credit and saves you five grand probably pays for a lifetime of tax returns and people yeah, don't. And I would, I would love to know the number of the 9 million people that didn't get the money they were owed. How many do this themselves? It goes back to do it yourself. I had someone come in yesterday, Elias, and she's 67 or friend 72 and her friends like, well, you could do it so much cheaper if you just did this and. She's like, why would I want to do this myself? I don't know anything about it. But her friend was only worried about the fees. And I told I told the lady I was talking to, I'm like, you know, your friend probably would have been significantly better off over time utilizing somebody to help her because she didn't get all the tax benefits she was entitled to and she probably didn't maximize what she could have. Yeah, I can I can save money working on my own vehicle too. Well, I asked her, I said, does she change her own oil? Well, no. I said, okay, then she's not saving money. 
Yeah. You know, go get the gas change oil. Like, yeah. I actually asked someone the other day, and apparently, this was the first person I've ever met, but they don't pay any, uh, they don't pay any professionals any um, cost. So, because like they were, their biggest concern about working with someone was the cost and the fees. So I was asking about that, and I used the analogy of working on your own vehicle. Yep, I do that. I go, so like if the plumbing's not working at your house, do you do that too? Yep, I do that. I go, so there's zero, you've never paid anyone for any service? Nope, I haven't. I go, never, they won't pay you either because they don't, don't see the opportunity cost. There. They don't see the cost benefit. <laughs> so I got so, I go, do you make your own clothes? Well, no, I don't do that. <laughs> like, there you go. You but, at least delegate something in your life. And you know what? It's really hard to quantify for those people what the advantages of doing not doing your own dentist work or i mean i know and then the net yeah it, but dude, you it know, was like, just yeah the conversation got off track so that's one of them and deals. changing your oil is easy but you're doing your own plumbing what happens if you mess it up like no one's thinking about if i mess it up and i flood my basement it's now thirty thousand. yeah so you versus get a kick. hey i hired a plumber and he messed it up guess who's on the hook now so you'll get you'll get a kick out of this so then the next question was so where do i buy no load mutual funds i said i would have no idea how to do something like that <laughs> you can do it yourself why are you asking you don't me? need don't well you know it actually kind of reminds me it's the people that want all want all your knowledge for free like the, yeah, just that, that's your what the person wanted the person wanted me to teach them how to open a do-it-yourself account and buy no sales charge Mutual fund. Sorry, but you're not getting free work out of me. Yeah. He, you got free eight minutes from all, me and that's it. We all know people like that. Yeah, you give me eight yeah. minutes, but it doesn't mean you have to tell them how to do it. I just I just thought it was hilarious. You can do everything for yourself. You don't know where to. You don't even know where to start. Yeah, so you don't you know where do to this. open an account. Yeah. Anyway, I don't even know how we're talking about that. But. All right. Well, I don't know how we got off track there, but um, I, I think I got us off track. But let's just get back to some of the. Some of the ways that home improvements could become tax deductible if you're making some of these. But I think it's first good to level set some terminology because it gets thrown around and I don't think people understand what all of them are. So I've got a list of some terminology you need to know regarding the home improvement tax incentives. And the first one is what a tax credit is. These are dollar for dollar reductions on your tax bill. So when you claim a credit, the amount you owe goes down exactly the same dollar amount. So let's say you owe 10,000 on your taxes and you get a $5,000 tax credit. That takes your tax bill from 10 to five. So it's probably it. one of the best things you can get. A credit's one of the best things you can get. A tax incentive, these encourage taxpayers to do something like install an appliance in exchange for a tax reduction. Same thing. So you'll hear like, um, I know in our office building, they're replacing all of the HVAC system. The reason is the landlord met with her accountant and the accountant said, based upon the tax incentives and all the things you qualify for this year, you should just do it this year instead of continuing to do maintenance and replace parts as you go. So they're incentivizing her to replace the entire system today versus waiting and fixing it. Probably a good idea. Well, I mean, that's why they're doing it. I mean, think about it. This, this HVAC, HVAC system is 20 years old. Well, they want more efficient 
stuff that works better uses less energy. So they're incentivizing people to go replace their stuff. Tax refund. You're familiar with this one already. You'll get a refund if you pay more in taxes than what you have to. This isn't actually like a benefit to you. It just means you gave the government a tax-free loan for however long that money sat there until you got it back. A rebate. These are retroactive tax decreases. So unlike refunds, they actually can come at any time of the year. And they're often kind of offered to stimulate the economy. And part of the reason the, the government will do that is people tend to spend them immediately. I think one of the um, if you think about what we did during COVID, we sent all these checks out. That's kind of a rebate. Just, hey, here's a bunch of money. Yeah. Go kind stimulate is, yeah. the economy, buy your fireworks or paint your house or buy furniture, whatever people did with their their stimulus checks. It's the same thing as a rebate. And a home improvement tax deduction, there's qualifying improvements to your home that qualify for these deductions. So Elias, there's some energy efficient tax credits that are out there right now, uh, making people aware of these. Uh, there's really like four or five. I'm going to just touch on them quick. If you want more information, you can go research what you qualify for. But so a couple of these that we're going to hit on are heat pumps. Your air conditioning and furnace are two of your biggest energy savers. And most of these credits are all re revolve around like clean energy um, and becoming more efficient. If you switch to an energy efficient heat pump, you can get a 30% tax credit up to 2000 bucks. So that's probably the reason landlord here is switching out the furnace. Hey, we're going to get $2,000 per unit probably. And it might be more for a, for an actual business owner. Um, windows and doors, you can get up to a $600, $600 for windows and $500 for two doors. Insulation, it's a 30% tax credit this year. Electrical upgrades, it's a 30% credit up to $600. And um, those are some of the main ones people could do to kind of offset the home improvements that they're doing on a home. The other one that uh, people are starting to take advantage of as a tax deduction, and this really proliferated the last three years, and that's the home office tax deduction. As people start to work out of their house, that you're doing work there. You do qualify for some kind of a tax deduction for that. You got to be careful what you do, but pretty much you have to figure out what the space of your home is that you're using for that office. So if you have a thousand square foot house and you're using a hundred square feet, then that would, you know, qualify you for some home office tax deductions. If you're going to do a home office tax deduction, contact your, your CPA make sure you're doing it the right way. So I do work out of the house. Sometimes I don't claim a home office tax deduction. Partly I don't. Why is that? My CPA says it raises red flags. If you have an office and a home office tax deduction, and I don't choose to come under any, you don't want to be a, you to. don't want to be a red. Well, not, it's a, it'd be a minimal benefit. Cause it's like this small area of my house. So what am I really going to save? A few hundred bucks? Yeah, probably. And I already have the it. benefits of this. So if I was only working out of my house, then I would probably do would. that. But based gotcha. upon me having my office here, and I've we have all of our other offices throughout kind of the, the Midwest, I mean, we've got multiple offices we utilize. I think it'd be really hard for me to say, oh, yeah, I have this home office tax deduction. I'd like another $600, please. Like, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Um, now, that said... When I started off in this business, I was working out of my house full time. Then I utilized the home office 
deduction, but it made sense. I didn't have an office any other place. So those are some of the main ones that people can qualify for. There's some, if you have rental property investments, uh, but a lot of those end up falling under depreciation. So if you're looking to get tax related advice on improvements to your home or improvements to your rental properties, you should contact your CPA and have them help you. They'll know what you're eligible for. I know when I get my uh, my my tax return intake form, hey, did you buy a property? Did you sell a property? Did you improve a property? And it's this list of like 150 things I go through so that they have an idea of the things that happened in my life. I just don't assume that they know what I did because they don't. So I make sure they have a list of everything I did for the year. Well, and while we're, while we're on the topic of properties and homes and mortgages and things, you know, on social media, especially. So one of the easiest, best ways to make passive income is through rental properties. Um, now, can it be a way to generate income? Yes, it can. Is it easy? In my opinion? No, I don't believe it's easy. Um, I believe there are certain skills that you should have before doing it. But nonetheless, it's a question we get asked a lot. Typically, I feel this comes more from younger investors. Hey, in addition to doing my retirement savings, I think I want to get into rental properties and do that. And um, just some higher level things, you know, if you, it's easy to make it look easy on a YouTube video, or maybe you watched a couple shows. I think the reality for almost everyone I've ever talked to that owned rental properties, it's, it's a significant amount of work, energy, and time that goes into it. So six questions to really consider if you're going to dive into, uh, into an investment property, rental property to make some uh, passive income off of it. Do you have the down payment and do you meet the other requirements to make that investment? So an investment property, typically you're going to need 15 to 25% down payment plus closing costs to even start to get this deal done. Your credit score is going to have to be, a, you're going to have to have a good credit score and then debt to income ratio, which will include your primary mortgage. Um, kind of, I think the threshold is about 45% maximum debt to income ratio. So it's kind of a situation where if you don't have a down payment, your debt to income ratio is already maxed out. One, the bank's probably not even going to be interested in uh, helping you get the deal done anyway. S another question, can you pay the expenses of the property without tenants? And that's kind of, to me, this is maybe even the first one you should ask. And if the answer is no, then I, then I think you should start leaning towards this probably isn't for me. Um, and certainly the cash flow from that house, from the property, if you're going to need it to just make ends meet every month, you know, really you should be cash flowing that and either storing cash for maintenance or aggressively paying down the mortgage that you have. Do you know the laws, the landlord and tenant, the landlord and tenant laws of the state you live in? That's a great question. Well, what rights will you have as a landlord? Well, and especially in different states. So let's just use this example. You're a landlord in Iowa, but you buy a place in Missouri. Are the laws the same? Likely not. No, they're probably different. They're probably different. So in 
and the reason I bring that up, Elias, is many people have thought that buying a vacation rental is a great idea. Like, oh yeah, I'll buy this vacation place and I'll rent it out. My my wife brought it up because you know we have a place at Lake of the Ozark. She's like, maybe we should buy another one. I said no. Like, are you gonna rent it out for sixty five days a year? Only time people go there is in the summer. I go, you're not factoring in the maintenance, the destruction people are gonna do, the HOA fees, the insurance, the headache, the cleaning. And as I yeah, talked to the she's to like, you'd be going to get in your boat to go have fun for the day and your phone's going to ring because the dishwasher's not working. Good example. I w- we were there last weekend and there was a storm coming in and there was a tenant in a unit just on the other side of me and they had a screen. So I'm on an end and they're on an end. And there's like this little um, shade that comes down. Well, guess what? The tenant didn't put the shade up. So now there's 30 mile an hour winds and the thing's whipping and it's going to rip through their new screen porch they put in. Fortunately, I had the number of the owners and I called and said, hey, the tenant didn't put the shade up. Would you like me to go put it up before it destroys your screen porch? If I hadn't You're been nice there. Neighbor. You are well, a nice neighbor. If I hadn't been there, there's probably a problem. And then they show up and guess what? Now they have a $2,000 repair. Like all those things that the vacation rental property has become like the way for people to afford a vacation rental who can't do it. But I was watching a Ramsey video the other day and someone called and said, Hey, should I do a Airbnb or VRBO? And he's like, no, it's 26 times the headache of a regular rental. And that's a big enough headache because you're getting 26 different tenants here in the place. You know, Casey in our office, he has a, he has a VRBO in town. He had people trying to squat there. I mean, if you're thinking about buying a vacation rental, it's not a good idea unless this is what you're going to do full time. You know, we have um, we know people, a friend of mine owned 30 or 40 apartment buildings, different rentals all through the town. Guess how many he owns today? Zero. Zero. Yeah. He figured out after what he's really getting and the time and the effort, the energy and all the cost, he was better off just buying a real estate investment that was managed by somebody else. Yeah, which leads to another question. Um, are you ready to manage a property or do you have the extra money to hire it out? So I I do have a friend who has a couple of rentals and utilizes a property management company. So I feel like his experience as a landlord is better because he's not interacting with the tenants. He just owns the property. But the thing is, he owns rental properties as a way to diversify his total investment portfolio. He's not looking at it for income and he's willing to pay the property management fees to just not have to deal with it, which is to me a good approach. Yeah. The normal person, not the normal, the person who's thinking about buying a rental property for the first time, most of them don't know what a rental property manager is or a property management company is. Yeah. That's not a good thing. They think they're going to do it themselves. And then Think about how they figure out they can afford this thing. Okay, well, this is the cost. This is what I'm going to rent it for. Or let's even use a a property that's currently being rented, right? So they have rental history. Okay, well, it had 40,000 of income last year because that's what the realtor is going to disclose, right? They had 40,000 rental income. It costs 300,000. So if you just on paper look at that, you're like, oh yeah, I mean, that's like a 13% cap rate. That seems pretty good. Right. 
Well, guess what didn't come out of the 40,000? The 20% you paid to the property management company or whatever it is, the cleaning cost, the repairs, the taxes, all the other things. And pretty soon you get to the point where what's the real return here? Like five or 6%. I mean, pretty low. And it was more three years ago, but the cost of homes now is making it more difficult to make the numbers work out in a rental type arrangement. And I'm not, guys, I'm not saying that rental properties are bad. There's been tons of wealth in this country created through real estate. And there will continue to be wealth created through real estate. But if you're going to do it, I always tell people there's three questions. What's your skill to do this? Like, can you fix anything? So I'm going to use myself as the example. Okay. So qualifying questions, can you fix things? That's a thumbs down for me. So that means I got to hire someone to do it. That's another cost. Two, do you want to be fixing things? And do you want the phone call at 11 o'clock at night that, oh, the air conditioner went out and it's Friday night. I need to get somebody out here. Yep. Those are all no's. And then three, do you just want the headache of it? it? Like, so if you, it's kind of like when we talk to people about working with us, Elias, you have the time, knowledge, and desire to do it. Ask yourself, if you're going to do a rental property. Do you have the time to do it? The knowledge to do it? The desire to do it? If not, it's not for you. If you answer no to any of those things, you have to either delegate it or say no. We're, I'm a big, I'm a big delegation person. I know you I don't like own any delegate. rental properties because you don't have time to do it. You've got three kids. No, I have zero. I could. I probably have the skills and the things to do it. I have no time, and I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want to spend my free time doing that. So anyway, you, so. you definitely have the knowledge to do it based yeah. on your background but you don't have the time nor the desire to take care of that property. Yeah. And so it's a no. I think it's actually a good way to to kind of end the show. I think the takeaways from the show today are if you're a first-time home buyer or looking to invest in properties, there's just lots of factors you need to think about. It's not just the cost of the property and the financing of the property. Really, you should be asking yourself, do you have the time, knowledge, and desire to do this? And if you don't, you either have to delegate it or say no to that. If anybody has any questions, you know, you can contact us at btwellshow.com. Until next week, I want to thank everybody for watching. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.